We are in Genesis chapter 46, and let's again just ask God to bless our time in his word. And so, Father, we just uh, come to you tonight, Lord, and, and we humble ourselves before you and before your word. And uh, we recognize, Lord, that we are not reading a textbook and we're not learning knowledge uh, for our heads or, or um, academ academic purposes. But, Lord, we recognize that your word is eternal, that it's living and powerful, that it's sharp that it divides, that it uh, builds, and that it uh, feeds. And so, Lord, as we approach you and approach your word, we're asking that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We're asking you, Lord, that you would give us soft hearts and the ability to receive the good seed. And we pray, Lord, that the things that you say to us tonight through this uh, most amazing text would uh, penetrate, Lord, and, and that it would motivate and that it would illuminate and that it would help us, Lord, that as we leave here tonight, Father, we would not only be fed and built up, but, but Lord, that we would have a straight path and vision for our feet and for our future and for our purpose. And so, Lord, we're asking you for these things, and we're not depending upon human strength, O oh Lord, but we're depending upon your spirit and, uh, and your kingdom's power. And so, Lord, would you dispatch every resource of heaven upon us now, Lord, as we approach your word and that you'd help us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're wrapping slowly or, or, or moving slowly towards our conclusion of the book of Genesis. And what we uh, gather at this point in the process of what God is doing from the wide scope perspective is that God is seeking to establish a nation. He is building uh, for himself a nation on earth, and that is his intent. That is why he spoke to Abraham, who then gave birth to Isaac, and then Jacob after him, and the 12 sons that, that will become the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of what will be, still yet future from this point, the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel. And God is intending to build this nation and to plant this nation and his purpose for doing that, God wanting a nation that is his in the world, is that it might be and exist as a medium whereby he can then make himself known to the rest of the world. He also wants a nation that he can use prophets, priests, kings, and even common people from that nation that he will be able to communicate with, that will then record his word. And so God building up this nation, not just to make himself known generically, but specifically, so he can give his word to, and to the world through that nation. Also, God wants a nation on the world that he can then use to bring his son, so that God himself can step down from his throne, be born as a human child, and then live the life of the Messiah, and then die in the place of fallen humanity and pay the ransom for the sin of the world. And God is intending to bring this nation into the world for these reasons, to make himself known, to give his word, and then to reveal his son that is the solution to the plight of human uh, sin and human suffering. And so this nation, Israel, as it will be called, which means governed by God because it's God's nation, God is planting in order that it might be a physical expression of his eternal invisible kingdom. That's what God wants. 
He wants a human physical entity that is the representation of an eternal, invisible kingdom that he is over. Now, we call this the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not something that started with Israel and then built up from there. But it's something that pre-existed even the creation of the world. The kingdom of God over which God is king has existed eternally because God is the king over that kingdom. Now, when Jesus came into the world, so God burst this nation, he develops the nation, time passes, the kings and the lines of the kings come and go. And in the fullness of time, God fulfills his purpose and he brings Jesus into the world. He himself comes into the world as the babe in Bethlehem. And when he does that, Jesus, beginning his ministry, he begins to preach or publish or herald this kingdom of God that exists in the eternal invisible. And so when we read in Matthew's gospel, the very first things that took place in the ministry of Jesus Christ, it tells us in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, that from that time, from the beginning, he began to go forth and preach the kingdom of God. When he gave his first sermon, recorded again in Matthew, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the very first things that he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And he 11 times in the Sermon on the Mount talked about the kingdom of God, this thing that was mysterious, this thing that was unknown, but now is being revealed and manifested through the ministry of God the Son. He speaks of the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 9, Verse 35, it says that Jesus went around all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So the good news of the kingdom heralded. When Jesus sent out the initial 12 to go and preach two by two, it tells us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, He said, as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so giving them the message to spread around that the kingdom is at hand. In Matthew chapter 13, which gives to us those parables, the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the dragnet, all of those were parables intended to teach or describe the kingdom of God. He would say that the kingdom of God is like unto a man who sowed a seed in a field. The kingdom of God is like a... And and all of those parables were intended not just to say that there is a kingdom, but to actually help us to understand how that kingdom functions and how that kingdom works. And so Jesus wanting people to be familiar with this invisible kingdom that exists over which God reigns. Over 50 times in Matthew's gospel alone, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. It was one of the primary parts of his message. What he came to proclaim was this kingdom. When Jesus stood before Pilate, just before he was crucified and he went to the cross, before Pilate, and and Pilate asked Jesus outright, he said, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response to Pilate in John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus said that my kingdom is not of this world. 
If it was, then my servants would fight. And then he, you know, so, so basically what Jesus was saying is that there is a kingdom I have come to proclaim over which I preside that is separate from the kingdom that is this world. And that's an important distinction and thing to understand. That the kingdom of God, eternally, invisibly existent, is not synonymous with the kingdom of this world. And Israel was the entity through which God would make that kingdom known to the world that was separate from us. Now, the Bible makes the distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, during the tribulation, when wrath is being poured out and things are being set right, there will come a time that is yet future where the Bible declares, and you can put it up on the screen, that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Thus, telling us that there is a distinction between these two kingdoms in the here and now. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, and he gives instruction to you and I. And he tells us, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away with its affections and its lust. But he that does the will of God will abide forever. Making again a distinction that the kingdom of this world is not only separate from the kingdom of God, but that it is also adversarial to the kingdom of God. The two are at odds with one another. The two are at war with one another. Now, what Jesus came to do in heralding the kingdom of God is that he came to make the distinction between the two. First, declare its existence, then make the distinction that they are separate, and then to declare the fate of this present evil age, as it's called in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. And the fate of this world, this present evil world, and you can put it up, Galatians 1, 4, you can see that this evil world, it's declared, it's damned by God, and it will one day be destroyed. And Jesus came to declare the fate of this fallen kingdom and also to usher in and open the door, provide the way for humanity to become citizens of his eternal kingdom. So he came to declare damnation upon this world and to open the way that whosoever wants to can be saved from the destiny of this fallen world and ultimately find their citizenship secured in heaven, not again by anything that they have done, but because of what he provided through his death on the cross. And so Jesus came to provide the way out. Now, when a person takes Jesus up on that and says, yes, I agree, this world has fallen, and I give you my allegiance, and I want you to save my soul and save my life, the Bible declares to us that he, because of what he paid for, he translates our citizenships. He gives us, as it were, a green card, wherein our citizenship is no longer in the kingdoms of this world, 
But now we are given citizenship in heaven. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. It tells us that Jesus, through his offering on the cross, that he delivered us from the power of darkness, the kingdom of darkness. And listen, he has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Meaning our citizenship has been transferred. We've gone from one, and now we are legal citizens in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven. He's translated us. He's made that happen. Paul declares to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, and I was supposed to tell them to put it up in the New King James because the King James confuses it, but it says that your citizenship, that's that word conversation, that your citizenship is in heaven. It's not that it will be in heaven. It's not that the paperwork is being processed. It's not that you're a dreamer. And if you can jump through the right hoops, you will one day obtain citizenship. Or even that you have a visa. If you can prove that you can do something effective, we'll let you in for a while. But you, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are renouncing your citizenship in this world. And you are immediately completely vested and be, you've become a citizen of heaven, declared so by God. That is where your citizenship is. We're legally citizens. Now, what that means, if that's you here tonight, you've given your life to Christ and you're a citizen in heaven. What that means is that your physical presence here on earth makes you a foreigner. You are a citizen of another country, another kingdom, living abroad in a kingdom that you don't belong to, that you're not a member of. That's why the Bible calls us strangers. That just means foreigners. Pilgrims, meaning we're passing through a land that's not our own. And aliens. Again, just that's old King James for that we aren't citizens of this world that we live in. And so from the world's perspective... We are foreigners, we're strangers in this land. But listen carefully, and this is what I want you to hear tonight, is that from God's perspective, when he looks at you and I and our physical presence here on this earth, he doesn't see us as foreigners, but rather he sees us as ambassadors. In fact, the Bible declares that that's what we are. We are ambassadors for God and for Christ in this world. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Notice what it says. It says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself. Meaning that we were enemies, but now we are friends by Jesus Christ, and, listen, he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Meaning that God has given us the task now of bringing the way of reconciliation between man and God to man that doesn't know God. We have the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that is, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and he has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
as though God did beseech you by us, we pray to you in Christ's place, be reconciled to God. Now, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. Your citizenship is secured in heaven. And that God has now given you a service, a ministry of bringing this word of reconciliation to a fallen world, to lost people. And therefore, the title that God has given you and the way that God sees you and me that are physically present in this world that we no longer belong to is that we are ambassadors representing him and his kingdom in a land that we are no longer citizens in. We are citizens and strangers in it. Now, what is an ambassador? An ambassador is a representative from one kingdom to another kingdom. And the purpose of an ambassador, I mean, you probably could make an exhaustive list, but essentially it's threefold. An ambassador is, first of all, a spy, right? I mean, not necessarily in a negative sense, like we think about the Russians or collusion and, you know, hacking and that kind of thing. We're not that kind of spy. But what does a spy do? A spy harvests information and gathers intelligence. And that's something that we do. We do that for our own sake and in order for strategy and, and, and in order to make a difference and do some good for God in this world. An ambassador is also a liaison, someone who makes the connection. That's that whole idea of reconciliation. We're the modern-day priests, if you would. We stand between fallen man and a holy God, and we are, as his ambassadors, we are liaisons between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And we are also strategists. Ambassadors are strategists, which what they do is they leverage the conditions and opportunities that are presented to them, and then they use them for the benefit of their sending kingdom's interest. That's what an ambassador does, both in the worldly sense and in the sense of which we are called. Now, a good ambassador, someone who's a good ambassador of the, the, the country that sent them out, their allegiance is fully set with the sending kingdom. They don't have a dual allegiance. Well, I'm half for this world, but I'm half for this world, especially when there is opposition between the two, as the Bible declares that there is. And so a good ambassador is fully allied with, fully devoted to the country that has sent them, and a good ambassador is fully set on the mission that's been given to them by their sending country. And so in, uh, in the broad brush context, our mission as ambassadors, is the great commission, right? Matthew 28, go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, hopefully we understand that that's the mission statement of our existence. Now, that's broad brush. How you and I fit into that in the micro details of life, that's individual according to the gifts that God has given, the sphere of influence that we have, the conditions that allow us or don't allow us to do certain things. And that's where the relationship comes in, that he's with us always, even to the end of the age. And so our mission is the great commission, and our title is that we are ambassadors for his purpose and for his kingdom. Now, you say, what in the world does that have to do with Genesis chapter 46, picking up in verse 28? It has everything to do with that and the verses that follow through the next 
chapter and a half. And that is this. We have seen thus far that Joseph in the text is a picture, an example, a parable of Jesus Christ. That his life teaches us It helps us understand Jesus because of the similarities, the commonalities. And in Bible teaching terms, we call that a type, that Joseph is a shadow or a picture of Christ. And so we've also then seen that Canaan is a type or picture. Israel is a picture of God's kingdom, the dwelling place where God's people will live, the promised land where Jacob and his family are living, where God promised to Abraham. It's a picture of this kingdom, this kingdom of God. Egypt in the Bible is a picture, a type, a shadow of the world. From Genesis to Revelation, every time you read about Egypt, symbolically, it's speaking of the world. Let me just read you a small verse from Isaiah chapter 30 to illustrate this. God says through the prophet, he says, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, that take counsel, but not from me, and that cover with a covering, but not from my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame And the trust in the shadow of Egypt, your confusion. And all of that speaking to you and I, applicably, practically, of how we would look to the world, the world's ways, the world's counsel, and the world's resources for our help, instead of looking to the kingdom that has sent us, that we belong to, and that God promises will be the provision for everything that we need. And so Egypt is a type, a picture of the world. So what do we have going on in the saga at this point between Joseph, his family, and the Egyptians? Joseph, who represents Jesus Christ, has now sent for Jacob and his his sons, his descendants, to come and leave Canaan and to be foreigners in a strange land to live in Egypt, as it were, citizens of the kingdom, leaving the place of promise and coming into a foreign land that is aggressive against or contrary to the place that God had planted and intended Jacob and his descendants to be. And thus, in the passage, what's happening is that the people of God are being placed by Joseph in a land that they're foreign to, a foreign land. They're foreigners living abroad. And what this is a picture of, what's about to transpire, is a picture, listen, of the believer, you and I, placed by the greater than Joseph, Jesus Christ, in a world that represents a kingdom that is contrary to the kingdom of God. And what we see in this text is how Joseph set them up, why he set them up, and how they would be able ambassadors. And that's the topic. I know this was a long introduction, but that's the topic and the subject of how these next verses apply to you and I. What does it mean to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ in the foreign land of earth that we are living in? 
And how does Jesus set us up in our lives and in our position as Christians in the world that we might be good ambassadors? What is a good ambassador? What does it look like for you and I to represent our kingdom rightly in our day-to-day lives? And thus, as we look through this text, we're going to see a bunch of ways, and you can take notes. I think there's seven of them in totality, but we'll move through them very quickly. Ways in which these people teach you and I what our mission is and how we can best fulfill it. So let's begin reading in verse 28, and then we'll pull our points from the text as we go. And the points are, how can we be good ambassadors? Verse 28, it says that he, that is uh, Jacob, sent Judah before him to Joseph to direct his face unto Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. And Joseph made ready his chariot, and he went up to meet Israel his father to Goshen, and he presented himself unto him, and he fell on his neck, and he wept on his neck a good while. So this reunion between father and son, it's been 22 years since they've last seen each other, and now there's a reuniting of the two and this amazing emotion that is exchanged between the two as they, as they meet. And it says that Israel said unto Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are yet alive. I'm always amazed at how valuable human life becomes the older we are and how valueless the things of this world become as we realize them for what they are. I mean, Jacob is a wealthy man who's just had the opportunity of a lifetime dumped on him. And yet the thing that matters most is the fact that he's seeing his son again and nothing else matters in his life. And it says that Joseph said unto his brothers and unto his father's house. Now listen, Joseph to Jacob and to his family, I will go up and I will show Pharaoh And I will say to him, my brethren and my father's house, which were in the land of Canaan, are come unto me. And that's our first point in terms of what is this whole idea of being a good ambassador? What makes us successful, able ambassadors for Jesus Christ? And that is, number one, is that we fully understand our identity. Notice what Joseph says he's going to say to the Pharaoh. He's going to say that they were in Canaan, but here they're with me. They were in Canaan. That's where they live. That's where their roots are. That's where their home is. But because of the famine, they are here with me for a time. It's very important to you and I, if we're going to be good ambassadors for Jesus Christ, that we understand our identity that we know who we are, where our home is, and whose business it is that we're to be about. There was a time shortly after I got saved, I was having a conversation with my dad, and there was a couple of other people that were present in the room. And as we uh, talked together, he was sharing with them some stories about me when I was a kid. And one of the people in the group said, what was he like? You know, when he was young, I was this, now I'm the saved on fire for the Lord and, uh, and, and just, you know, different. I was, I was a, a firework. I was, you know, just on fire that, I mean, I hope I still am, but it's different, you know, it's more seasoned, but, 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 but my dad's response, he said to, he said to them, he said, 
I was worried about Nick when he was a kid. He said, because he was impressionable. And, and, you know, to be completely and totally honest with you, at the age of 19 years old, when he said that, my first thought was, I don't know what that word means. I'm going to have to go look it up, you know. And then I was like, wow, impressionable, you know. So then I, I did. I went home and I looked up what impressionable meant, and I realized that that wasn't a compliment, you know. And, and, then, and then as I thought that through, impressionable, it came to me, I realized, that's your fault, you know, if I was impressionable as a youth, then you're, you're the, the reason why I was impressionable. I, you know, I never said this to him, and it's probably good that I didn't know what that word meant and that I didn't respond that way in the group of people that, that were there. But that was the, the thing that came upon me. Why? Because that's our job as parents to impart to our kids a sense of identity. That we, as, our, as their parents impress upon them the ideals that define who they are. And so when we talk about identity in the context of our call in part in his kingdom, we've got to know who we are. Again, when Jesus was baptized and the spirit descended upon him, marking the first of his ministry, the voice that came from heaven and the word that was spoken over his life, the first words were, this is my son. That's identity. And in order for Jesus, who was the greatest ambassador, the one God himself coming into the world and representing the kingdom and being the very picture of it, he needed that sense of identity, that that's who I am. I am the father's one and only son. That's who I am. And the world that he was in tried to put every other kind of identity upon him. They said, is not this the carpenter? And they threw an identity at him that wasn't his. At another time, they tried to say that he was a prophet. Oh, and yes, he was a prophet in the sense that he gave prophecy. But that was not his identity. He was not a prophet. And another time, they tried to say that he is a king with a lowercase k. Sorry, I've got to do that this way for you guys. You know. That he's a king with a lowercase k. That is a king of the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus said, no, that is not my identity. And he withdrew himself from them. And every day of his life as an ambassador of heaven in this world, he had to hold to the fact that he is not the title that the world places upon him. That he is not a byproduct of the world's menu of what the world makes human beings. He also was not defined by his talents and his gifts. Well, he was a doctor. He was a physician because he healed. He said, no, I'm not. He is a prophet because he prophesied. He said, no, I'm not. He said, my identity is that I am the son of the father. He said, you are my son. He didn't say you're a doctor, a healer, you're a preacher, you're a teacher. He didn't say that you're a business person. He did not say that you're a successful parent. That is not your identity. The world does not define what we are by its cheap labels or by even our talents and gifts. God defines who we are and our identity comes from him. We belong to him. We're citizens of his kingdom. We represent his purposes. That's who we are. And if we lose our sense of identity, we lose everything. Because when you lose your who, you lose your why. When you forget who you are, automatically your reason for living becomes corrupted. And if you don't know your who, if you don't know who you are, if you're still searching for an identity, then I can guarantee that you don't know your why.
why you exist and what you're to do and what, what, for what it's for. What is your why? Do you know? If you don't know your who, you'll never know your why. And if you lose your who, and you allow the world to put its labels upon you and you become what the world says, then you will lose your why. You'll get cloudy and you'll get distracted. Joseph said, they are Canaanites. They are citizens of the promised land, the, the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here, they are with me. The Bible says that you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's who we are. We're citizens of heaven. We represent his purposes. And if you want to know what your purpose is, figure out who you are. You're a Christian. That's a good name. You belong to Jesus Christ. Thank you. Involve yourself. It helps me preach. I like it. No, thank you. you know. The second thing we'll read in verses 32 through 34 after identity is that we understand our place of service. Notice what it says in verse 32. It says, And the men are shepherds, Joseph speaking, saying what he's going to say to Pharaoh. For their trade has been to feed cattle, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And it shall come to pass when Pharaoh shall call you and shall say, What is your occupation, that you shall say your servant's trade has been about cattle from our youth even until now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. We'll come back to that last sentence in just a moment. But the service that they were to uphold and that they were to declare, that they were to be about, their business in Egypt was that they are about sheep. That's who we are. That's what we do. It's not who we are. It's what we do. We are about sheep. Now, spiritually, contextually, biblically, for you and I, what are the sheep? It's people, right? We are sheepherds, in the sense, of people, shepherds. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, David making himself a sheep. Jesus would talk about himself, and he would say, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. Jesus would say to Peter, when he restored him, he would say, Peter, feed my sheep. Paul would exhort the elders in Acts 20. He would say to the elders which are among you, feed the flock of God which is among you. Peter would write in his epistle to the elders and he would say, shepherd the flock or care, tend the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, the flock. And thus the Bible equates the people of God with the sheep of God. You say, what is that? Where's the gap here in this? Listen, as ambassadors... Our business is people. That's what we're about. As Christians, we're to be about the well-being of others. Now, we have an edge in this because we're connected to the God who made people. And therefore, when we understand that whatever God's purpose is for me, somehow it's attached to the well-being of another human being, then it helps me to understand how I'm to go about doing that, and God's the one that gives me the resources to do it. God gives us the ability to reach into people's lives in some degree, whether we're an evangelist or whether we're an encourager or whether we're a teacher, in whatever way that God has gifted us uniquely. And, that, and, and, and God has so many colors and ways that he does it. The reason for it is not to benefit and glorify ourselves, but rather it's for the sake of representing God to a world that he desperately wants reconciled back to himself. And the more we embrace the reality that God has called us to love people, 
and we give ourselves to that, however God would want to use us, he expands our understanding and our ability to reach into people's lives. He does that through his word. He does it through our observations. He does it through our experiences. And he does it supernaturally by his spirit. But he gives us the ability to touch people's lives, ultimately to deconstruct their defenses and bring them into God's kingdom. It's an amazing thing that he does. And I wish I could talk more about it, but we've got to move on. For those of you that have yet to find what it is that you're called to do by God, I'll give you a clue. It has something to do with people. And I'll add to that this caution and warning. People are dangerous. And they bite. And they're poisonous. So be careful. That's why Jesus said, be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. It says at the end of that verse, it says that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Did you catch that at the end of verse 34? It's our third point if you're taking notes tonight. And that is that if you're going to be a good ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ in this life and in this world, then you and I, that we need to be ideologically separated from the world that we're in. One of the reasons why Joseph wanted them to say that we are shepherds was, first of all, because it's true. That's what they did. But secondly, because he knew that once they said that, Pharaoh would draw a line in the sand and he would not integrate the people of Jacob, with the people of Egypt. There was to be separation between the people of God and the people of Egypt. And that's an interesting paradox. They were ambassadors sent into a a, a nation to represent another, but yet they were to be separated. How does that work? Well, what did Jesus say? John chapter 17, verse 5. His last prayer, praying for you and I, those that would believe on him in the future. He said, Father, I do not pray that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil. In other words, God, as his ambassadors, wants us in the world, but he does not want us of the world. He wants us in the culture, but he does not want us defiled by the culture, or assimilated into its ideologies. He puts us amongst the people that he wants us to reach, but he draws a line in the sand and he says, I do not want you to be corrupted or influenced by their ways. And thus, as good ambassadors, we remain separated from the world, though we are in the world with the intent of serving God's purposes. That's a challenging thing to do, isn't it? Because it means that we have to be students of the culture that we live in if we're going to be effective in reaching it. But yet we must never allow being students of that culture to defile us and bring us into a place where we're compromised. But for us to remain completely separated and insulated will never fulfill our mission and purpose. What that means is that in our relationships with people, we need to listen. We need to listen to their verbal cues and find out the things that they're into and carry on a conversation and maybe learn something about the culture that we're in that we might not be inclined to want to know about as the people of God consumed by God. But we might have to learn a thing or two about sports if those are the kinds of people that God has given us a sphere of influence about so that we have a gap to bridge. Never mind. You get the idea. A bridge to get... Yeah. Anyway, 
we may have to we may have to become students of the culture but yet maintain of enough of a relationship with God that we aren't defiled and consumed and distracted by it. They were to be ideologically separated from them. We must do that. Number four comes to us in chapter 47. And that is that as ambassadors, good ambassadors, we must have respect for the kingdom that we are in right now. That is this world. Listen to verse uh, 1 of 47. It says, Then Joseph came and he told Pharaoh, and he said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have are come out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they're in the land of Goshen. And he took some of his brothers, five men, and he presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto his brothers, What's your occupation? And they said unto Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. They said moreover unto Pharaoh, For to sojourn in the land are we come. For your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is sore in the land of Canaan. Now therefore we pray thee, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh spoke unto Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers are come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. In the best of the land make your father and your brothers dwell. In the land of Goshen let them dwell. And if you know any men of activity among them, any of them are industrious, productive, they're energetic in their industry, then make them rulers over my cattle. And Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. I find it interesting, he didn't bow to Pharaoh, but he did bless him. And Pharaoh said unto Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have the days of my, the years of my life been, and I have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. I, I'm not as old as the people that went before me were. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph nourished his father and his brothers and all his father's household with bread, according to their families. Now, I love this because I think it's, it, speaks, it speaks to me, at least this part does, is that realizing that they were foreigners living in a foreign land, they didn't come in and pull rank and say, well, I'm a citizen of a higher kingdom, therefore I don't need to be subject to the customs and the laws of Egypt. Sometimes that can be our temptation. I know that it's mine. Sometimes I'm a bad example to my kids. Because we'll go hiking somewhere and there'll be like, you know, a stream. And the stream is so inviting, but there's a barrier with a sign that says, do not cross the barrier. And sometimes I'll just say, hey, God made this world. This is our world. You know, who are they to put up a barrier? Hey, I'm just being real. You know, sometimes that's my tendency. And, and I think that in some of those areas, you know, we have discretion and we know what's acceptable and what's not. But by and large, we must be respectful to the fact that we're representing another kingdom and what we do represents the one who sent us. And therefore, for us to violate the laws of this land and to be disrespectful to the governments which we're to be examples unto is to bring reproach upon the things of God. And it's important for us to comply. That's why Paul would say, obey the governing powers and the governing authorities. They go in before the Pharaoh. They give him respect. They let him decide where they're going to go. They realize that he's the king of this land. We're guests here. 
and they yield him place and they don't disrespect the politics of the land, listen, nor do they get involved in them. They represent a kingdom, they have a business, and they stick to it. I love this next section. Good ambassadors, beginning in verse 13, recognize true value. Notice. It says that there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very sore, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the corn which they bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when money failed, and I want you to circle that, mark that in your Bible, underline it, when money failed. It didn't say if money failed. It said, when money failed. That's prophetic. Every currency of this world will fail. When money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For money fails. And Joseph said, give your cattle, and I will give you for your cattle if money fails. And so they brought their cattle to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses, and for the flocks, and for the cattle of the herds, and for the asses. And he fed them with bread for all their cattle for that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the second year, and they said to him, We will not hide it from my Lord, how that our money is spent. My Lord also has our herds of cattle. There is not aught left in the sight of my Lord's, but our bodies and our lands. Wherefore shall we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for bread? And we and our land will be servants unto Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land be not desolate. And Joseph brought all the land, or sorry, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for the Egyptians sold every man his field because the famine prevailed over them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to cities from one end of the borders of Egypt, even to the other end thereof. Only the land of the priests bought he not, for the priests had a portion assigned them of Pharaoh, and did eat their portion which Pharaoh gave them, wherefore they sold not their lands. Then Joseph said unto the people, Behold, I have bought you this day and your land for Pharaoh. Lo, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the increase that you will give the fifth part unto Pharaoh and four parts shall be your own for seed of the field and for your food and for them of your households and for food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find grace in your sight or the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt unto this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth part except for the land of the priests only, which became not Pharaoh's. Now, you've got you to gotta give Joseph some credit here. I mean, he's extremely shrewd in, in, in doing right by his boss, and he's also very fair in doing right by the people. I mean, he could have really made slaves of them and just compounded their land forever, or in, in, in whatever, took their land, confiscated it for the government. But he kind of he does that, but he kind of doesn't. He moves them strategically to places where they'll be able to uh, kind of harvest whatever fertility they can get out of the Nile basin. But then he gives them the ability to go back to their lands and he holds them as mortgages. And he puts a 20% tax on them, which they're glad to pay. It's an amazing thing. But the thing I like about Joseph here and the example that it is to you and I, it's a very important thing, is that he recognized what was really valuable and what really in the long term wasn't. 
Money couldn't save them. Possessions couldn't save them. Their Ford Taurus, their cow, their cattle, it couldn't save them. They weren't able with what they had, their tractors and their things. None of their possessions were able to feed them in the time when the famine waxed strong. Their land, their livestock, and their money was worthless when they needed food. And Joseph, from way before this, was able to survive and thrive in a famine and his descendants because he placed his stock in what was truly valuable. When you and I get consumed and we begin to live for things that are not valuable, we lose sight of what truly is. I, 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 I want to read this to you because it's so cool. There was, a, um, there was an inscription that was found by archaeologists in Yemen in around the year 1850 of a Yemeni princess who went to Joseph during this famine to buy corn and he wouldn't sell it to her. It says that the tomb contained the body of a rich noblewoman who was covered in beautiful jewels. Seven collars of pearls surrounded her neck. Her hands and feet were covered with seven bracelets, armlets, rings, and ankle rings displaying costly jewels. In addition, her tomb contained a coffer filled with rich treasure. However, the greatest treasure of all was a fascinating engraved stone tablet bearing her final inscription, which confirmed the biblical account of Joseph's careful management of the remaining food reserves during the seven years of famine in Egypt. The inscription read this, In thy name, O God, the God of Hamyar, I, Tejah, the daughter of Zushephar, sent my steward to Joseph, and he, delaying to return to me, I sent my handmaid with a measure of silver to bring me back a measure of flour. And not being able to procure it, I sent her with a measure of gold. And not being able to procure it, I sent her with a measure of pearls. And not being able to procure it, I commanded them to be ground. And finding no profit in them, I am shut up here. Whosoever may hear of it, let him commiserate me. And should any woman adorn herself with an ornament from my ornaments, may she die with no other than my death. An amazing illustration of what will come of all of the petty things that we live for in terms of the possession and riches and obtainments that we can have in this world. Can you eat it? At the end of the day, can it save your life? And if it can't, What's it really worth? And as ambassadors for Christ in this world, it's imperative that we keep the line drawn between what's really valuable and what's of no value at all. And we don't allow that line to become blurred. A good ambassador knows what's up. Notice verse 27. It says that Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt and in the country of Goshen. And they had possessions therein and they grew and they multiplied exceedingly. Listen carefully. There's a great promise tucked in here. While the rest of Egypt was famished, lean, and languishing, the ambassadors, the people of God that were doing things God's ways, that were under the care of the king, the king of kings, it says that they grew, that they had possessions, and they multiplied. Amazing, isn't it? May God give us that kind of fruit that we might be those kind of people. 
that we would bear good fruit. And then finally, verses 28 through 31, a good ambassador is always ready to go home. Notice the close of the chapter and the close of our study. It says that Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. So the whole age of Jacob was 147 years. And the time drew nigh that Israel must die. And he called his son Joseph and he said unto him, If now I have found grace in your sight, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. The the, the hand under the thigh was an oath. Here's the oath. Bury me not, I pray, in Egypt, but I will lie with my fathers and you will carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear unto me. And he swore unto him, and Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. Jacob lived in Egypt for 17 years, but his heart did not live there for one second. The entire time that Jacob was living in a land that was not his home, his heart was fully vested back in Canaan, back in the kingdom where his roots were planted. And for you and I to be effective ambassadors for Jesus Christ in the context of our life and our calling, our heart must be settled in heaven and that we must be ready to go in an instant. If you found out tonight that you were going to die tomorrow, what would your emotion be? (laughs) Honestly, a good ambassador's full allegiance and full citizenship Their full investment is in heaven. The worship team can come as we close. If you and I, as Christians, as ambassadors and those called by Jesus Christ to represent Him in this world, if we lose our why, if we forget who we are and what it is that we're to be about, the result of that is that our life is going to be characterized by a malaise a discontent, a cloudiness, a sense of hopelessness and a sense of wandering. Because we're in the world, but we're not of the world, but we kind of are. And there's kind of this mixed identity between the two kingdoms and we become useless on behalf of either one. And I ask you tonight, in all honesty, what is the description of your Christian experience? The status of your life right now in the context of your calling before the king. Is that the way you feel, a malaise, a sense of purposelessness, a sense of distraction, a sense of a divided heart? I'm half in this one, half in this one. I don't know what I feel like about dying. There's some things I still want to experience or enjoy in this world before I check out of here finally and forever. It's a question to ask yourself tonight. What's the status of your ambassadorship? Here's the good news. In chapter 47, verse 12, it was in the middle of our text. Did you catch it? It says that Joseph nourished his family throughout all the years of that famine. When you're an ambassador representing the cause of another kingdom, if you need resources, that sending kingdom, if it can afford it, will supply to you everything you need in order to fulfill your mission and rightly represent the king who sent you. So what does that mean for you and I? It means this. 
It means that if you sit here tonight and you realize, you know what, I need a renewed sense of calling, then you ask God to give you a renewed sense of calling. If you sit here and you say, I need a renewed love for people, I've lost my faith in humanity, and I've lost my reason and my calling in it, you ask God and you say, God, I recognize that I'm to be about people, and that's not my natural inclination, and I need from you a baptism of love for lost people, saved people, indifferent people, good people, bad people. God, I need from you an anointing and an empowering if I'm going to fulfill this mission that you've called me to. If you're here tonight and you say, God, I need to be revived. I need a renewed sense of my calling and what I'm to be about and how that works and what it's for. Then you ask God for it. Because God will supply to his people anything they need in order to represent him rightly and to fulfill the calling that he's placed upon them. Would you stand with me as we pray? Because we're going to ask God right now that he would do these things for us. Oh, Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your ways. We thank you for this great privilege that you have given to us to be called your ambassadors. And in these things that we've seen in Joseph's descendants and the way that Joseph set them up, Lord, we ask that you would do the same with us. And so, Lord, tonight, whatever it is, Father, whatever we need, if there's a repentance, if we've been entangled in the fears and cares of this life, God, we pray you'd help us to again be freed and renewed to serve only you. God, if we need a renewed sense of love, we pray that you'd fill us with your love for lost humanity. Lord, some of us tonight, I sense, need a fresh vision of your kingdom, a Bethel experience. We ask you, Lord, that you would give us a fresh vision of heaven, that we would be reminded again what it is that we're serving for and who it is that we're serving. And above all that, Lord, I pray that you would give us a fresh vision of Jesus Christ the king who laid the path and started it all, who translated us from the power of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. Help us, Lord. We don't want to waste our lives. We want to serve you fully. And so help us, Lord. Fill us now. Meet the needs that we have. We ask it in Jesus' name.